Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Got a great episode today, speaking with Michael Beckley, co-author with How Brands of Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China. I should note that I spoke with his co-author, Hao, back in February as part of our month-long series on the war in Ukraine. We spoke about his most recent book, which focused on how we can take lessons from the Cold War for today. Do you want to take a look at that? That's back in February. Danger Zone's a really interesting book. It pushes back on the conventional wisdom that America and China are in a superpower marathon that could last a century. Instead, they ask a different question. What if the sharpest phase of that competition is more like a decade-long sprint? Under their argument, we are in the middle of that decade-long sprint, and it's actually during this type of period, as they argue, China's power peaks, not increases, but peaks relative to the United States, where it meets the maximum point of danger in places like Taiwan and around the globe. We're going to get into why Michael thinks that China is peaking, what this means for, once again, a possible conflict of Taiwan, and lots of great questions that follow up on Sagar and my discussion episode. Lots of great stuff here. I definitely want to know what people think, so definitely comment and reply to the email or the substack. Well, that said, this episode is brought to you by Supercast subscribers. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to realignment.supercast.com. Once again, that's realignment.supercast.com. Five a month, 50 a year, or 500 for a lifetime membership. Helps us put out more content, upgrade our sets and our actual production, and of course, add bonus content like the AMAs that everyone knows and loves. Well, that said, huge thank you to our current sponsor, Lincoln Network. Hope you all enjoy this conversation. Michael Beckley, welcome to the realignment. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, great to great to chat with you. I uh, chatted with your co-author um, about his recent book back in February, so I recommend folks also check out Hal Brands' book about lessons from the Cold War for the present moment. So, Michael, let's just start with the provocative part here. Talk of a coming conflict with China. What is a timeline? that a listener should be thinking on? Because if you're thinking of why the Taiwan controversy was, uh, with Speaker Pelosi was so controversial, I think a lot of folks who weren't checked into this issue woke up one day thinking, holy crap, is a war about to start tomorrow? Like, what, what, what timeline should we be thinking of, given the dynamics you're writing about? We think this decade in the 2020s, what some people call the terrible 20s, is the most likely period for sharp conflicts between the United States and China, because we think that China's power is peaking. Um, it's acquired formidable capabilities, but it's windows of opportunity to, say, make a move on Taiwan, to expand in the South China Sea, to carve out an economic empire through the global South. That's really, for various reasons, going to be at its maximum during this decade. And then going into the 2030s, there's just a series of severe headwinds that are going to drag down China's wealth and power, as well as you know China is likely to be entering a um, succession process sometime in the 2030s, just given the age of Xi Jinping, who will be in his 80s by the early 2030s. So for various reasons, you know, kind of like in the early Cold War, where American policymakers really worried that because the Soviet military was deployed all over 
Eurasia because communist parties were starting to win uh, or not win, but gain uh, lots of popularity, even in Western European countries, that they had to avoid losing near term battles in order to get to the long game. That's sort of how we look at the 2020s, that there's going to be this sharp period of conflict and confrontation. But if we can get through that and buffer those um, those this period of hostility, then the United States has a number of advantages and there's there's hope that there can be sort of a modus vivendi with China in the long run. I want to get to those advantages in a second, but can you just define what sharp conflict means for folks? Well, at, at the most extreme, you could have a war over something like Taiwan. I mean, we really worry that, um, you know, China is serious about bringing Taiwan back into the fold. And given that peaceful options for doing so, seem to have dwindled down to nothing, just given the where public opinion is in Taiwan and given China, Taiwan's emerging international status and deepening relationship with the United States. We just worry that China, which is coming off a 10 year period of churning out warships and ammunition, might decide to flex some of that military muscle that they've built up. So you could have an actual hot shooting war. But even if you don't have that, I think you're going to have a period where competition becomes much more zero sum than it has been. Obviously, the United States and China have had a, a percolating rivalry, you know, ever since the end of the the Cold War, where you have the collapse of the Soviet Union, and the United States and China are left standing as uh, two of the most powerful countries in the world. But it's really entering a much more um, scary phase where now, you know, so many of the issues are framed in zero sum terms. You know, the South China Sea can either be international waters or it can be a Chinese lake um 5g telecommunications you know you can either use huawei or you can use some american um, blessed alternative um uh, the internet you know is increasingly being divided you can either be open or it can be heavily censored so there's just so many issues that are really coming to a head where easy compromises um and a willingness to compromise is is much less right now than maybe it was in the past and Possibly in the future, we could get back to that period. But right now, we're just in a much more zero-sum competition. Something I'm curious about, could you speak a little more about the like Taiwanese public opinion part of this? Because this is really interesting. Like what, when, when you're referring to, like what dynamic are you referring to when it comes to like Chinese um, and um, Taiwanese and unification? And how did that, at least up until the past few years, how would the state of Taiwanese opinion lead one to conclude, okay, maybe the Chinese think that a peaceful unification could happen? So I think there's three elements here. One is just more and more Taiwanese now identify solely as Taiwanese and not as Chinese. Roughly two thirds of Taiwan's population now just considers themselves Taiwanese. Um, and especially among the younger generations, people in their 20s and 30s, it's in 80 something percent. Um, and so that that is a major change from before where, you know, half or or less uh, uh, consider themselves solely Taiwanese. So that has to be worrying. The second is that um, support for reunification with China, which has always been quite low, is is almost non-existent in Taiwan. And at the same time, even though most Taiwanese favor some form of the status quo, there is this group. Uh, that used to be at 12%, but has now risen to 25% just in the last three or four years that says, okay, we want the status quo, but we want to start taking slower, like some steps towards more autonomy and maybe even eventually independence. And so that has doubled from, you know, as I said, 12% to roughly 25% just since 2018. And then the third factor is just the DPP, uh, which traditionally was the opposition party and the one that 
is more leans more towards uh, autonomy for for Taiwan has been winning successive rounds of elections in 2016 in 2020. Um, and I think from China's perspective, even you know right now, President Tsai Ing-wen in, in Taiwan, even though she represents the DPP, is relatively pragmatic. But you have to worry if you're China that in this upcoming election in 2024, where the Taiwanese people are even more anti-China than they were in previous elections, are not only going to re-elect DPP candidates, but perhaps a candidate that is less pragmatic, more willing to um, run their mouth and, and start making moves uh, that would push Taiwan closer to uh, independence. So it's just the trends just aren't going in China's direction. They thought they could essentially buy reunification by forging economic links between Taiwan and the mainland, but that clearly hasn't worked. And so that leaves the, the military option, um, which is why this is so tense and scary right now. I think a question that would come from that too is, are, are what are the Taiwanese doing then from a defense and like internal perspective, because obviously, um, and I don't want to like victim blame here or say they're provoking the Chinese with their thoughts um, or anything like that. But, you know, if if looking at that 25% that is dissatisfied with the status quo, like what defense policy, like what sort of foreign affairs approach, like does this like increasingly vocal set basically support? Well, uh, you know, first of all, a, a lot of Taiwanese citizens express um, doubts about their military's ability to fight off China. And so a lot of them assume that the United States will will bail them out, or at least they hope that that would be the case. Um, so I don't want to argue that there's tremendous confidence on the Taiwanese side. But to Taiwan's credit, they have passed through a very ambitious um, uh, defense reform program that would essentially turn the island into a strategic porcupine. So stocking up on lots of anti-ship, anti-aircraft uh, missiles, mines, smart drones, and basically just make it extremely hard for massed forces from China to either come across the strait for an invasion or to surround Taiwan um, and carry out a sustained blockade. And this is something that American policymakers have been trying to push on Taiwan for many years. The problem is it could be too little too late because it's going to take a long time to revamp Taiwan's military forces. The, the budget has increased, but it's still relatively low. It hasn't anywhere kept pace with China's obviously massive military investments. And so there's, there's just this lingering worry we have that, sure, maybe Taiwan will become a very hard nut to crack by the 2030s, but if China is making moves in the 2020s, that's not going to do much good. And if anything, the Chinese are probably looking at these defense reforms in Taiwan and saying, well, you know, if we're going to strike, we should do it now because neither the United States nor Taiwan has really moved quickly enough to spread out their forces, to make them more resilient and to, to use some of the same tactics that China uses to fend off the U.S. Navy and Air Force from its shores to do the same with Taiwan. Could you talk about the difficulty presented by uh, an invasion of Taiwan. Like how, 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 and once again, it's hard to give a perfect prediction here, but like how difficult would it be for, you know, the PLA to launch an invasion of Taiwan? Like what would, what would be, so, you know, you have to cross the strait, you have to actually get into the country. There's the topography, like talk about that part of it. Yeah. I mean, this is the most, difficult mission in warfare, moving an army across a body of water. And I think it would be especially difficult 
in the case of China and Taiwan, because for one thing, the Taiwan Strait is it's at, at various points in the year is, is one of the windiest places on Earth. I mean, typhoons are common, 20 to 30 foot waves. And then even once you get to Taiwan, um, Taiwan is sort of a natural fortress. There's only 14 beaches that defense analysts say you could even really land a large military force on the East Coast is basically off limits because it's all sheer cliffs and you'd have to sail an extra day around the island to get there. Um, and then the West Coast is mostly mud flats that extend two to five miles out from Taiwan's coastline. And so if you're trying to you have to come in at high tide. Uh, if you don't, you're going to get stuck in the mud and you're going to be trudging through mud while taking fire from precision guided munitions, uh, you know, attack helicopters, combat aircraft, uh, whatever naval ships have survived, uh, you know, to to shoot at. So, it, you know, if you've seen the opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan, you know, the D-Day invasion, this would be that times, you know, 10 times 100 because, you know, the Germans were on, on French territory and they had mostly small arms and simple mortars. Ta Taiwan has been spending decades preparing and booby trapping all of these areas that China would land. And they are obviously armed with advanced modern munitions, precision guided munitions that, as we've seen in, in Ukraine, um, can make a meal out of massed military forces. So this would be sort of the double black diamond of military missions. And the Chinese military obviously hasn't fought a war since 1979. None of its main soldiers have really fired a shot in anger. So you have to wonder how they would perform just thrown into what would be a horrible meat grinder from the start. The question is then, is it just, is the alternative plan or policy then just surrounding and blockading Taiwan into submission? So just simply saying like, okay, like don't launch the actual um, physical invasion on the beach, but just blockade the country. Some people would say this would be reminiscent of what the PLA exercises a few weeks ago where it's basically worse. So what about that alternative? It's, it's a viable alternative. It's maybe easier, at least initially, to organize militarily because you don't have to get those troops across the strait and land them. The problem is it's not a decisive military action. You're basically just hoping to starve Taiwan into submission. Taiwan has obviously made some preparations for that. You know, they have shelters and stockpiles of food and fuel ready to go. And in, in the interim, if you're China, you have to worry that, first of all, you may just come under attack, you know, like the United the US or Japan or Taiwan may come out and just try to sink the blockade force. At, at the very least, you're going to come under severe sanctions and possibly even a distant blockade of, uh, say, China's energy resources, most of which go through the Strait of Malacca, very far from the mainland of China, and China would have a limited ability to break that blockade. You'd also um, have obviously just the historical record of, I, I can't really think of a blockade that single-handedly has caused a nation to give up its sovereignty. Blockades are very useful to soften up an adversary, um, to, to st start to erode their will, but it's not decisive until you finally land troops on their territory. I mean, just for historical context, the United States in the Second World War imposed what I think remains to this day the, the most severe blockade of Japan of any country that we've seen in the modern era. The operation was literally called Operation Starvation, and the United States cut Japan off from almost all of its fuel um, and outside food resources. And the Japanese still didn't give up until the U.S. you know, started inching closer towards the mainland, dropped nuclear weapons on them, and then the Soviet Union declares war on uh, Japan. So, you know, blockades just aren't that decisive. And you give 
not just Taiwan, but the United States and all of its allies time to rally a coalition to start picking apart uh, China's military. And so it's just it's a very risky maneuver, even if on day one, it seems like the safer option for China. Because it seems to me that the the point of vulnerability that a quick, decisive invasion could actually exploit is just it, it happens, everyone freezes, the longer a blockade goes on. And frankly, given, you know, this is super CW, but given social media, the longer you would see images of starvation, of deprivation, it would really seem to push the argument towards like the anti-Chinese coalition in this case. Is that, is that, so yeah, that's, that's, that, that's helpful. Something I'm going to wonder about, um, cause obviously there's the news that, you know, the, um, Chinese and Russian militaries are conducting joint exercises. Obviously, if this happens, this happens all the time, you know, like the exercises have been done basically forever. But I think that news item, especially given the context of the war in Ukraine, is going to give people thought, is a war, who are the players involved in a sharp conflict in, in the 2020s? Is it the US, Chinese? Is it the US, China, and the Taiwanese? Is it the US, Japan, um, you know, the, the the French have indicated they possibly would engage in a conflict there. Like, how should we think of the actual belligerence in this case? Would Russia have even the physical ability to join in? Like, how should we think of that? So I, I, I think the main belligerence would be, you know, Russia and China on one side and the United States and a series of allies on the other side. But I think in terms of the main combatants, it's going to be primarily China on one side and the United States and Taiwan on the other. So, you know, Russia will you know try if there's a blockade russia will try to get food and fuel into china over land um although that can also be destroyed uh you know pipelines are just sitting out there so i don't know how well russia could really help china if there is some kind of distant blockade put on it and russia's ability to project military power into the pacific theater is obviously limited they still have some holdover ships but a lot of them have atrophied and just given how Russia's military has been ground up in the war in Ukraine, which could still be going on, you know, in the kind of timeline we're talking about. I just think the amount of direct military assistance that Russia could provide would be limited. Now, if both China and Russia are rattling their nuclear saber, that is a big deal because, you know, if it was just China with several hundred nuclear weapons, that's something the United States could feel pretty confident about deterring because they could say, look, we have overwhelming nuclear superiority on him. But if Russia is also saying, look, this is we're at a time of global warfare, essentially, um, and we're also thinking about using nuclear weapons or escalating somehow in the European theater, that could make things very difficult for the United States and its allies. Um, on the US side, I just think you know, most allies don't want to be directly involved uh, in the shooting. I think that's somewhat changing, especially in Japan's case. You've had Japanese leaders say an assault on Taiwan would be a, a vital threat to Japan just because Taiwan would be a logical staging point to carry out a blockade or an assault on Japanese islands. And you see more interoperability between the United States and Japan. I mean, US F-35s are practicing landings and takeoffs from Japanese amphibious ships that have been turned into mini aircraft carriers. Um, you have Japan doubling its defense budget and doubling down on the undersea, you know, the submarine capabilities, the mine lane and clearing capabilities that it already is world class in because of the that was its role in the Cold War was to bottle up the Soviet fleet there. Uh, Australia now through AUKUS is going to acquire these long range anti ship missiles that could actually make it a player, um, you know, down in, in the South China Sea. So if the conflict extends horizontally into other theaters, I think you would have Australia come into the mix. And then if this becomes a protracted war, which I actually think it would, 
then you might even see Europeans sending, you know, token warships to help enforce a distant blockade. Certainly, you would expect the Europeans to help sanction China severely um, if this conflict really is as bloody and big as as I fear it could be. Um, but this would all take time. I think in the initial stages, it's basically Taiwan with the United States having its back versus China. Why do you think this could turn into a protracted war versus a sharp, bloody nose in either direction? I mean, one reason is that's just what tends to happen historically. Great power wars. You know, there's so many classic tales of uh, policymakers thinking, oh, we'll be home by Christmas. And then years later with, you know, many, many thousands, if not millions dead, <laughs> realizing that um, it's just very hard for any side to uh, admit defeat and uh, to not want to gamble for resurrection um, because you not only have to worry about your geopolitical security, uh, there's no way for the other side to to be held to their end of, the, of a peace deal, but also you worry about your domestic security if you lose some kind of vital um, war. And so we just worry that this would definitely be the case in a U.S.-China war over Taiwan because it's hard to imagine Xi Jinping being able to um, accept a loss over Taiwan or at least go down without a serious fight, just given the emotional um, um, resonance of the Taiwan issue for the Taiwanese people, given how central it is to the CCP's narrative and legitimacy saying, you know, we we're the ones that ended the civil war. We're going to eventually create the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation and bring back these lost Chinese territories that were ripped away from us unjustifiably by imperialist powers. And for the United States, you know, if this is a battle between the two great superpowers of our era in the most important region, and Taiwan is sort of the center of gravity of that for so many different reasons, it's also hard to envision American leaders, an American president being willing to lose a war over Taiwan, at least not without some kind of fight. And both sides, because they are powerful countries, have options to reconstitute their forces, uh, mobilize their populations. And we've seen this throughout history. And because there's so many options for the United States and China to do that today, I, I think it's very likely that this war would drag on. Could you talk about the cost not just in, let's put aside uh, human lives, because I think that's pretty obvious there for a second, just the, the sheer economic, um, y'all have written about this, the, the economic costs of a, of a conflict, especially the protracted one you fear. So the, the Rand Corporation has done some research on this, and they estimate the U.S. would lose 5 to 10% of its GDP within the first year of a conflict, and China would lose roughly 25% of its GDP. Um, but obviously, these kind of calculations are hard to make. I think what we can say for sure is that, first of all, you know, Taiwan is sort of taken out of global supply chains immediately, right? Regardless of what happens, regardless of the type of war it is, how big it is, um, because the waters around it are going to become shooting galleries and, and literally a war zone. And so Taiwan, you know, is, uh, I think, the 20th largest economy in the world. It punches way above its weight. And obviously, because it makes 92% of the advanced computer chips, uh, you know, that are used in all of the the great uh, gadgets that we we use on a daily basis and something like 70% of, of, of many different uh, semiconductors, um, that that is going to collapse international supply chains for so many different technologies. And then just because this war is happening at the epicenter of the East and South China Seas, where almost half of the world of the globe's trade passes through, that also is going to have catastrophic effects um, on on the global economy. I mean, I think a global depression is essentially all but guaranteed, um, even in more minor kind of conflict scenarios, just given 
how economically vital this this area um, is for so many different countries. I'm wondering then, given what you've just described and given the discourse in this country about, you know, gas prices, inflation, everything relating possibly in different ways to the the war in Ukraine, what do you think the U.S. domestic political pressure would be to basically just let it happen? Um, just basically say, look, this is a tragedy. Look, this is terrible. Hong Kong was taken fully into China, you know, a few years ago. That sucks, but the cost of protecting Taiwan isn't worth those costs there. But what what is what is your response to that surely present American domestic political pressure? I think that is extremely unlikely for a couple of reasons. One is, um, you know, President Biden has already said on at least three occasions that the United States not only would defend Taiwan, but that it's a commitment that the United States makes. Now you can quabble with you know his interpretation of the Taiwan Relations Act but clearly he is making it clear that under his administration there would be an American response uh, the bureaucracy and especially the Pentagon has been preparing for this war for I would say decades um, and certainly in in recent years and so it's sort of primed already to react and then just what we what we typically see in wartime um and especially just given how I think this war would begin, namely with a Chinese strike, not just on Taiwan, but likely on American bases on Okinawa. So those are the only two bases the U.S. has within 500 miles of Taiwan, which is really important because a lot of U.S. fighter aircraft run out of gas you know, after a thousand miles or so. And so the Chinese, their military doctrine, I mean, they have there's texts that say this, that say, look, you know, if we're going to fight the Americans, we have to go big and brutal from the start. And so they have war plans that call for huge strike, Pearl Harbor style strikes on American bases on Japan and possibly even on Guam. And so if that's how the war starts, if you just looked at how Americans have reacted to getting punched in the face, whether it's actual Pearl Harbor, 9-11, they don't get beaten back into submission. They tend to get really angry and gear up, you know, in, in the Japanese case for total warfare um, against a great power. And so I just think there's and and because getting tough with China is now one of the few bipartisan issues in um, in the U.S. Congress, it just doesn't seem like the the voices. I know there are voices in the strategic community that say, "Look, you know, we need to really rethink: Has the United States overextended itself? Is it really worth worth risking a nuclear war over Taiwan?" I think those voices would be quickly um, swept aside, just in the 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 emotion, the heat of the moment, as well as just a lot of the pre planned. Uh, operations that are already, um, you know, uh, poised to be triggered in the event of a, a full uh, full scale Chinese assault. You know, I'm curious about this. What, you know, if you're if you're referencing, you know, Chinese writings on the, you know, Guam and Okinawan strikes, what lessons do you think the Chinese have taken from Pearl Harbor? Because it seemed to be the lesson would be do the absolute minimum necessary you're trying to find like this perfect combination of what is like the the thing we can do that can enable us to win the short-term conflict without bringing in the u.s in long term um and that's the balance that obviously the japanese did not get right um at pearl harbor um how are chinese thinking about that dilemma 
So there, there are Chinese military writings on this, and they're, they, they scare me because the lesson they take is not that the Japanese necessarily made a mistake by attacking Pearl Harbor, but that there was tactical mistakes. I mean, they missed key fuel dumps that could have kept the U.S. out of the war for much longer. There was, there was U.S. warships that happened to be out at sea at the time that just made it easier for the United States to reconstitute its navy um, and its striking power in a shorter amount of time. And so I think the lesson that the Chinese have learned is you got to finish the job. I mean, you have to, you really have to obliterate that combat power so that you then have the time and the space to carry out a fait accompli over the territory that you're trying to take. If you only hit the big eagle uh, halfway, then you're just inviting retaliation. And the Chinese, I think they just assume that the United States is going to involve itself. And so the question is not how do we keep the United States out of the war? It's how do we beat and grind down American forces such that they are not effective enough to prevent us from doing what we want to do? I think the next question becomes, and this is where the World War II analogies get a little uh, confounding a bit. Um, So obviously what the US is able to do in World War II is you have you know a bunch of battleships sank, sunk um the carriers weren't at pearl harbor so you know that would have been an objective but it wasn't achieved but either way within a few years the us literally creates hundreds of new carriers because like we have the productive capacity um that meant that basically we would win the war against the you know the nazis and the japanese no matter what happened long term how would you assess like that current state of us industrial capacity when it comes to a type of protracted conflict like this? So right now, the United States is not ready for a protracted conflict, which is actually alarming from a crisis stability standpoint, because you could see the logic for from hawks in Beijing saying, well, look, you know, the United States is not ready to gear up for a conflict. So if we can hit them hard enough and then consolidate our control over Taiwan so the war is effectively over, maybe then they would give up. Um, and just not decide to do the World War II mobilization strategy. They also have a pretty dim view of America's ability to get its act together because of the polarization in in American politics and society, uh, the various distractions that it has. Um, so I, I think that that gives them some could give hawks in in Beijing some confidence that they could actually um, um, carry this out. The United States, you know. Because of, you know, with the end of the Cold War and the peace dividend uh, really reduced a lot of its mobilization capacity. And so for a lot of munitions, for example, there's like literally one factory that makes crucial components for certain precision guided munitions. Right. Um, And so that's obviously not enough to ramp up if there suddenly is a war. It would take months, um, if not several years to get that production capacity up and running. And that's assuming that there's not Chinese sabotage. Um, missions, which there almost surely would be given China's cyber capabilities um, to try to disrupt that ability to to mobilize from the American side. So this this is one of the many factors that makes Hal and I scared that there is this sort of strategic window of opportunity for China, just given the lack of uh, of preparations on, on the American side for what could be a, a protracted conflict. I think a key thing that let's say, I think, dovish critics of uh, hawkish-minded discussions on this topic kind of misses that everyone thinks the world you're describing is a disaster. On our side, we don't want it to happen. The answer to me then is deterrence. 
Um, if, if a Chinese invasion is launched, we've already failed to a certain degree, given that framework. So what does a proper deterrence policy look like moving forward from today onwards? So I think I think it's almost the opposite of what the United States has been doing recently, which is talking very loud, <laughs> ta- talking loudly, talking loudly, while basically maintaining the same military posture that it's had in the post Cold War era, which is built around big, exposed bases, very expensive, multi-role platforms like big warships that can do a lot of different things, uh, short-range combat aircraft, all parked at these big bases or concentrated. You know, putting all your eggs on a single carrier that can be taken out by a single missile, right? Um, and so I, that's the worst. That's the worst thing you can do. What you need to be doing is, first of all, stop talking so loudly. All these provocations that give China the impression that there's this slippery slope of a tightening relationship between the United States and Taiwan, elevating Taiwan's international status. I mean, this just feeds the the feeling that we need to move and that we need to move quickly to stop this slide towards Taiwan being forever ripped away from the mainland. And at the same time, you need to uh, adapt to China's strategy, which is to use advanced missiles to wipe out bases and all those fancy platforms before they even have a chance to get off the ground. An F-35 is worthless if it's destroyed on the runway. An aircraft carrier is worthless if it's sunk, you know, a thousand miles from uh, the main combat theater. So what, you know, the United States has plans, you know, defense analysts have been, you know, harping these plans about, you know, distributed lethality, that we need to move from a force based around big bases and aircraft carriers surging over the horizon and essentially lay down high-tech minefields around potential combat theater. So lots of sensors and shooters. You can put them on anything that floats or flies, essentially. You could have barges with missile launchers strapped to them. You could have lots of drones that are essentially high-tech mines that can loiter and be called into action. And you can also encourage allies to use a lot of the same capabilities. I mean, you're literally taking a page out of China's playbook with its so-called anti-axis area denial capabilities and turning them back on China. And that would create a, a much more resilient force that's harder to wipe out in a Pearl Harbor style attack. And it just makes, from China's perspective, it's very difficult to move massed forces through what could be a hail of missiles and mines. And, you know, a lot of these technologies, they already exist. You know, this is this is off the shelf stuff. It just requires quick procurement and deployment of a lot of these capabilities. And we're seeing a little preview of what that could look like in the Ukraine war, where Ukraine with, you know, a few high, a few uh, rocket launcher systems provided by the United States um, and some some small arms has, has been able to take a major toll on a massed Russian army. That's something that needs to be replicated in East Asia in on a grand scale. Could you talk about provocations, like define like provocations and help us just understand what those look like? Well, I, I, I think, um, you know, first for, for first of all, for China, you know, I, I think it's important to recognize just how um, emotional of an issue it is, not just because of Taiwan's um, role in the, the century of humiliation. You know, you know, Japan takes it over in 1894, 1895 um, uh, in, in the midst of, you know, eventually, um, you know, really reaping apocalyptic brutality on China in the early 20th century. Um, and then it's obviously the site of a rival Chinese government that is democratic and linked to the United States. That's not great for the CCP's legitimacy. But I think it's also important to point out that Taiwan is the history of U.S.-Taiwan-China relations is a major cause of the suspicions on China's side that the U.S. is will basically just do anything to hold 
China down because there's been multiple times where, you know, Nixon, when he was negotiating with Mao and Zhou Enlai said, well, we'll 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 give up Taiwan, but we're going to do so in my second term. And then Watergate happens and he gets kicked out. And then successive presidents say, well, we're going to walk back our commitment. But then they get overridden by the U.S. Congress with the Taiwan Relations Act or we're going to reduce our arms sales to Taiwan. But not not really. Actually, we're going to continue to sell. You know, so there's just a series of what from a Chinese side seem like promises from the U.S. side that have been broken. And so that that is the, the the context in which we need to look at something like Nancy Pelosi's visit today, that it's not just this one off provocation. It feeds this narrative that the Chinese have, that the U.S. is basically trying to keep China and Taiwan separate, that bogs China down and to actually destabilize the Chinese regime by propping up this democratic alternative uh, right off of um, China's shores. So, you know, I know congressional delegations have been going there, cabinet secretaries have been going there, the level of arms sales, you know, Biden's statements that seem to be actually tightening the U.S. defense commitment to Taiwan. There's legislation pending on Capitol Hill that would do crazy symbolic things like just changing the name of the office that Taiwan has in in Washington, D.C., um, which, you know, kind of elevated status, make it seem more like an embassy. I mean, what that is not going to actually help Taiwan defend itself, but it is definitely going to provoke China because it just feeds this narrative of a slippery slope um, in a direction that they see as as, as really infringing on, on one of the most vital interests they have. Here's a dilemma I want to get your thoughts on then, though. So obviously, I think especially the way the Pelosi trip went about was just ill-advised on 15 different levels. But that said, <clears throat> when it comes to American domestic politics, and given the scale of the pivot the U.S. has to make, whether it's on the defense spending question, whether it's on the is this a price we're willing to pay um, question, it seems like the Pelosi trip at least like advanced the centrality of Taiwan in a useful way. So do you, do you know what I mean? So how do we? So like, let me put it this way, right? Like I, I, you know plenty of friends like on like this democratic like center left things like the pelosi trip like actively make them much more sympathetic towards taiwan and much less generically skeptical of like defense spending and procurement and those different bits so how do you think about that balancing act when it comes to those provocations well i think the first thing to note is that from a u.s and taiwanese perspective you know, we have like 80 to 95% of what we already want in the sense that Taiwan in almost everything but name operates independently. Sure, it may not have embassies around the world, but most countries will still do business with it. It's got a flourishing <clears throat> democracy, a wealthy economy. And so how, how much closer are you willing to get to war to get the full-fledged, you know, uh, uh, de jure uh, uh, autonomy for Taiwan, not just de facto autonomy for Taiwan. I think that it's a risk-reward kind of calculation that we need to make. And you know, just as you know, you have friends on the American side who maybe have more sympathy for Taiwan, just given uh, what's just taken place. You have to recognize that it's also inflaming opinion on the Chinese side. I mean, Chinese social media, and granted, you know, the state probably has some hand in this, but a lot of Chinese people on social media were saying, look, we actually want our government to do more, that it was unacceptable that all we did was, uh, you know, uh, deploy some some warships and some aircraft around Taiwan and, and simulated the use of force. We want a more forceful response to these, these provocations because it's such an emotional issue. So is it really worth it to rile up the side for whom this is viewed as a vital issue 
just to maybe get some more sympathy among um, um, folks in the United States. I'm just not sure that that's the case, especially because if push comes to shove, China at the end of the day is always going to care much more about Taiwan than the U.S. And so the question is not about trying to build up more U.S. resolve. It's making sure that you have the capabilities such that China cannot act on its advantage in resolve that it's always going to have on this issue. And I guess the key takeaway then from what you're really saying is to the the your 80 to 90 percent thing also applies to this topic, which is we already have 99.8 percent of the information frameworks context to make the sort of policy pivots we need to make. So, you know, Nancy Pelosi likely isn't going to be speaker going into 2023. Like at what point would Speaker McCarthy, let's say, making another visit? add to the actual tableau we're talking about here versus the the inflaming side. So for this uh last section I want to I want to go back to your your previous book um Unrivaled which is talking about um the US's America's prospects in the 21st century because it relates really strongly to everything you're really talking about here. So um the way that most folks would conventionally tell the story of this century and this relationship between the US and China, which is really what we're talking about here, is the US is on the decline, insert all these different, you know, metrics you could talk about, insert like the British Empire, um, you know, uh reference and all that, changing world order, end of the post-war period. And then China is this rising power. You are really just pushing back against both of those frames, both like the U.S. as a declining power and then China as the rising power. So can you start with the U.S. first? Like, why should we interpret this coming decade through the perspective of America not being on the decline? Well, I, I think if you if you look at sort of broad indicators of just which country has more wealth, um, which country has more military power projection capabilities, there's still a large gap between the United States and China. The U.S. has roughly three to four times China's overall wealth. And in terms of just being able to deploy military forces around the world and, and fight wars far from your shores, you know, it's it's um, still stacked very heavily in America's favor. I, I do think that there are local balances of power, though, where things have shifted in China's favor. So one is in the Taiwan Strait, where just because of the combination of geography and technology, China has home field advantage, essentially. It's only 100 miles from China. It's thousands of miles from the U.S. And the nature of precision-guided munitions just makes sitting ducks out of a lot of the very powerful capabilities that the United States has, like its aircraft carriers and those big bases. So even though the overall balance of power remains stacked very much in America's favor, and even though the long-term prospects of both countries for demographic reasons, for geographic and resource reasons, for alliance and diplomatic reasons, I think is is even more stacked in America's favor, and the long-term trends are very favorable to the United States, there are these local balances of power where China has really translated a lot of its latent power into hard power assets on the ground, whether it's warships, sovereign loans around the developing world um, in, in a very aggressive way. And so that's why, you know, in this in the second book, I, I became much more focused on, okay, what happens when you have a power that is peaking and is not going to catch up to its main rival? Do they mellow out and dial back their ambitions? And in in this new book, you know, Hal and I go through all the historical cases where you've had a peaking power and they don't mellow out. They try to batter their way through the hard times. They try to score near-term victories that alter the long-term trends. And they try to basically grab whatever they can while they still can. And so that makes these local balances of power much more salient in this decade. So I think you can be both confident about the 
long-term trends for the United States, but deeply worried about some of these short-term red lights that are flashing, over, especially over something like Taiwan. You know, I'm curious. So the good way to think of the peaking power framework is that, you know, these peaking powers take disastrous gambles. Japan, Pearl Harbor, we went over that. Um, various references to Germany at various points during its history. Has there been a case where the gamble has paid off? Um, so the it, the big ones where you have a country that, you know, goes on like a Hitler style rampage, those basically never end well. But I think there's a selection factor going on there, namely that the countries that had to go on Imperial Japan or Hitler style rampages were in the kind of, from their perspective, the most dire situations. (laughs) (laughs) And so they had used force and the deck was already stacked against them. Uh, One of our cases is actually the United States in the late 19th century where, uh, you know, after the Civil War, there was actually an economic boom in the United States. The U.S. economy takes off as growing like gangbusters. But then in the 1880s and going into the 1890s, you have a series of depressions. um, And and there was this perception that the U.S. had already expanded across the continent and there were no more greenfield investment opportunities. We were running out of markets and resources. And that creates this push for what becomes this the, the grand era of American imperialism. Abroad, the U.S. reacts by basically pumping exports and investment into Latin America and East Asia, and then building a huge military, especially a navy, to go protect those assets, and eventually ends up annexing territory um, way beyond its its borders. And um, you could argue that in the U.S. case, it ultimately proved effective because the United States continued to grow, and and that was one step towards becoming a major global power. I think the U.S. case, though, is not comparable to China today, because for one thing, the United States, you know, it was just growing demographically. It had tons of resources that China doesn't have. And it was emerging in the Western hemisphere where there weren't other great powers, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. all the, at least their homelands, all of their homelands are based in Eurasia. Eurasia is just a death trap for rising powers. I mean, any power that's tried to rise there and beat back its rivals usually gets crushed in a vice of all the other great powers ganging up on them, often with help from the United States. And that's what I think China is facing today. So they're not quite comparable, but if you're looking for a success case, I mean, the United States battered its way through those hard times in the 19th century and ends up emerging even more powerful and, and internationally engaged um, after uh, its its economic troubles in the 1880s and 1890s. What do you think about America decline narratives? I think that there's, you know, it's it's sort of, I'm a, as a podcaster, I'm kind of a professional zeitgeist watcher. And I think what's annoying about this conversation is you'll see people just give this, look at all these problems, polarization, political violence, gas, all the demographic, all these bits. And, you know, you could say, well, I mean, look at the mid 1970s, um, post Watergate, Vietnam defeat, 58,000 American, you know, troops dead. Um, it seems like on most of those, you know, a, a seemingly resurgent Soviet Union, it seems that at most of these decline, you know, thinking even like, you know, Japan's going to overtake America in the 80s. It seems like most of these times we've hit just decline narratives. They've been, oh, and I guess this gets to why I think your book is like really useful. Short term, it's easy to tell a story of American decline in the 70s and 80s. Long term, we were good to go. But now it seems the issue is it's the short term that actually matters the most with a possible conflict with China. So can you just like reflect on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, people that tout American decline in some ways are are a source of strength for the United States in the sense that you highlight weaknesses in the system and that can generate support for 
reforms. I mean, that's a critical weakness, I think, of the Chinese system. When you have a dictatorship, you can't let the dictator look unknowing or unwise or admit to major mistakes or turn things around. You ban negative news, which is what China has done in the economic sphere. And that makes reforms, smart reforms, difficult. And so in the US case, I think you can walk a fine line and say, look, it's actually good that we are constantly airing our dirty laundry, that we are paying uh, that there's always an opposition party that is looking to essentially uh, highlight all of the mistakes and all the terrible things that are going on under the watch of the other party. But I do worry that you, it is possible to cross that line from declinism to sort of nihilism and defeatism such that you uh, end up focusing more on your domestic political opponents and tearing each other apart rather than collaborating and coming together to actually fix a lot of these problems, which there always are going to be uh, in the United States. And I, I actually worry very much that even though the United States has tremendous advantages, demographic, geographic, um, in terms of its alliance structure, its basing structure around the world, that it could still crumble from within. I mean, we've seen that historically, too, where great empires uh, fall prey to corruption and political division and even civil war. And in the United States today, I mean, levels of polarization are at their highest levels since uh, the the Civil War. And, um, you know, I think this upcoming election is actually a very scary moment for the nation. I don't think it will necessarily collapse, but it just could be a much uglier period in American politics. And that could slow the U.S. ability to respond to major international events. So for the last question, I realized we kind of buried the lead when it came to why is China actually a peaking power? Can you actually just outline for folks why long term, aside from this decade, the and once again we know this you know internally this is a concern within the chinese communist party why do china's prospects actually look weaker longer term than we would conventionally think i think the first point to note is that you know double digit growth rates and a steady rise is not the norm for any country and especially not for china really the the past 40 years have been an anomaly most of chinese modern history is a, a tale of strife and, and poverty. I mean, really for a hundred years from 1839, from the first opium war to the end of the Chinese civil war in 1949, China is just ripped apart by imperialist powers and has two of the worst civil wars in recorded history. The Taiping rebellion alone kills 20 to 30 million people in the middle of the 19th century. And then even after the Chinese communist party unifies the nation and kicks out the Japanese, uh, China becomes the number one enemy of the United States almost immediately because of the Korean War, where they're fighting each other. And then 10 years later, China becomes the number one enemy of the Soviet Union because you have the Sino-Soviet split. And so it's not till the 1970s that China is not isolated and impoverished. And it, the, there are certain exceptional circumstances that made for China's subsequent exceptional rise. Um, and we think that all four of those circumstances are going away quickly. I mean, one is just you have uh, U.S. engagement and this period of hyper-globalization where the U.S. sort of fast tracks China's um, entry into Western markets so it can get access to those markets, access to Western technology and capital. And this is the start of what we now refer to as hyper-globalization. And lots of countries said, hey, we want to actually get in on China's economy. It's perfectly situated, huge uh, population for, for labor and consumption. And so China is able to ride that wave of hyper-globalization to become the workshop of the world. A second sort of fleeting factor is the uh, demographic dividend. So China in the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s had anywhere between 10 to 15 workers for every retiree 
in its population. And that's because China had a big baby boom in the 1950s and 60s, then followed that up with a one-child policy. Um, and so no population was more primed for productivity, I think, in human history than China was over the last 40 years. You had resource abundance. China was almost self-sufficient in most resources, which made growth very cheap because you had easy access to inputs. And then you had a Chinese government that was that was prioritizing economic growth and was willing to kind of get out of the way and let the Chinese people do their thing and have sort of quasi-private enterprises to engage with foreigners and um, you know set up uh, export platforms. But you know, lately we've seen all four of these factors really reverse. Obviously, we're moving from a period of hyper-globalization to what some people are calling a new Cold War. I mean, the United States is waging a trade and tech war on China. Various other economies are following suit. China now faces thousands of new trade and investment barriers today that it didn't face as recently as 10 years ago. Um, China's running out of resources. You know, Half of its water and arable land, almost all of its uh, deposits of energy are, are gone. And now it's the number one importer of food and energy and is suffering water scarcity. That's made growth three times more expensive. Every unit of GDP growth is three times more expensive to produce today than it was in the 2000s, just because inputs are so much more expensive and, and scarce. Uh, you have the end of that demographic dividend. Just between now and the, the 20, early 2030s, China's going to lose 70 million working age adults uh, and gain 120 million senior citizens. So that's like taking an entire France out of your workforce and adding an entire Japan of elderly retirees into your population. Um, and then lastly, you know, uh, the Chinese government seems to be sliding back towards neo-totalitarianism. And that wouldn't be so bad if Xi Jinping was a savvy economic reformer, but he just shows time and again, he is willing to sacrifice economic growth and efficiency in order to enhance his political control. The zero COVID lockdowns are just the latest manifestation of that. But you know, you can look at the regulatory crackdown on tech companies, um, uh, the fact that subsidies are channeled to state-owned enterprises that are very inefficient, the outline of negative economic news, which obviously makes reform hard. So we just look at all of these headwinds. We show that they're actually going to get worse in the years ahead. And that's why we characterize China more as a peaking power rather than one that's going to continue to rise. It's really returning to the historical norm of encountering geopolitical hostility in a much more difficult growth environment. And uh, tie it all together, the key point here is that peaking powers, when they are seeking to reorder international systems, are actually incredibly dangerous, which is why we are entering the danger zone to actually shout out the book. Michael, this has been really great. Um, would uh, really appreciate if you just actually shouted out the full book's title, referenced Unrivaled, because I think that, you know, even though the, I think the book is from 2018, you know, I think those broader arguments are certainly really valid for folks who are interested. Yeah. So the new book is called Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China. Um, it's written with Hal Brands, who is a leading historian on the Cold War. And I actually think probably the premier grand strategist of, of my generation. So it was really an honor to work with him. And then my previous book is called Unrivaled, Why America Will Remain the World's Sole Superpower. And that's the one that kind of charts out all of these long-term trends over the course of the 21st century and shows that China hasn't narrowed the gap as much as people think and is likely to fall further behind just because it's going to hit more headwinds than the United States in the decades ahead. Thank you for joining us on The Realignment. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something like the show of mission or want to access our subscriber exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, 
$50 a year or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.